Chapter 52 The Mountain At-Tur In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. This chapter's initial eight verses were revealed during the first year of the Prophet's mission. We will occasionally refer to the time and context in which they were revealed because doing so is critical in understanding when and why the Quran's chapters were sent down. By the Mount The books of Tafsir contend that this mount is none other than Mount Sinai, to which God summoned Moses for a meeting, and that God swears an oath by it because of its sacred nature. And a book Inscribed. This oath is believed to refer to the Torah, which was revealed to Moses upon Mount Sinai. In unrolled parchment. This refers to its pages. And the house frequented. Many commentators opine that this oath refers to the Kaaba for Mecca was visited by people from the region. And the raised canopy. This oath calls attention to the heavens. Some commentators say that it might mean a place that angels visit, like the house frequented mentioned above. And the sea surging. This last and final oath is said to refer to a sea of fire, meaning hell, or rivers of molten lava and their burning heat. If we place ourselves among the Meccans who heard these verses from the Prophet's lips and try to imagine what they thought of such references, then we might grasp entirely different meanings. But there is no dispute that God is swearing oaths by invoking things that were familiar, significant, and sacred to them. Therefore, we might wonder what kind of deity would swear oaths on Moses and his scripture when the people being addressed do not recognize him as a prophet of God. Of course, this is just a possibility because exactly what these oaths are referring to remains unclear and uncertain. As human knowledge advances, our understanding of what these oaths mean will also expand and become clearer. No tafsir or any other book written so far provides a comprehensive explanation of these oaths. Indeed, the punishment of your Lord will occur. Now we move to why these oaths were invoked, the divine punishment that will surely come to pass. In other words, this punishment from God is most definitely going to occur. No one can avert it. If we pause for a moment and consider when these verses were revealed, it would appear that the concepts of resurrection and divine punishment had not yet been fully explained to his audience. This chapter speaks about giving a warning, telling others about the existence of some kind of danger. 
Warning means making people aware of an imminent danger and wake them up from their spiritual slumber. This is actually the role of God's messengers and prophets. Punishment, adab, means the pain and discomfort that you feel when you are denied from something that you want. The punishment of hell is nothing other than the natural consequences that befall people as a direct result of their misdeeds and disobedience. This means that God does not actually punish anyone, but that the world works according to the laws of cause and effect. Choosing the path of error and wickedness naturally results in punishment. Up to this point, it has made clear that the Day of Judgment cannot be averted because it is innate and essential to the cosmos' rules. The sole way to escape it is to transform one's life via sincere repentance and reform. On the day when the sky shall shake frightfully, this is the day which chapter 81 proclaims that the sun will wind up its existence and darken, and the stars will fade away. It is amazing to think that incidents resembling these actually occur in the heavens on a daily basis. Astronomers and cosmologists say that a thousand suns die every day. Perhaps the judgment day mentioned in the Quran only refers to our sun and solar system, our own Milky Way galaxy, or perhaps to the cosmos as a whole. God alone knows the answer. And the mountains float away. This is not floating or moving as we commonly understand it, but a special kind of motion. Chapter 101 says that when the explosion occurs, the heavens and earth will be crushed together and the mountains will be like fluffed wool scattered in the air. This event must be truly powerful to have such a tremendous effect upon our planet. Woe on that day to those who deny the truth. Woe to the liars and the deniers, those who reject this message, mock its claims, and say that it is nothing but myth and superstition. They assert that everything ends with death, and thus there is no afterlife waiting for us on the other side. Who amuse themselves with idle chatter and play, we compete over rank and position, who is richer and who has a better house, and amuse ourselves in many similar ways. Those who are fixated upon this world and consumed by its distractions, absorbed in work and daily living, as nothing else really matters to them. In short, this applies to everyone who is so absorbed in their own pursuits that they utterly forget their Lord and their moral obligations toward Him. For on that day they will be thrust into the fire of hell.
This should not be understood in the sense of being pushed into hell. On the contrary, it appears that some kind of force pulls them toward it, as if the evil deeds that they committed while alive had made it their natural resting place. As I have said on several occasions, the fire found in hell is not the same kind that we know here on earth. Rather, it is something entirely unknown to us, for none of us have ever experienced or encountered it here. It will be said to them, This is the fire you used to deny. Is this magic? Do you still not see it? Is this how you imagined it when you said it was only a fantasy? Or do you now find yourself face to face with something that is very real? Burn therein. Whether you are patient or impatient, it will be the same for you. You are only being repaid for what you used to do. Burn therein means see the result of your actions. It does not matter whether you are patient or not, for the experience will be the same. Given that the punishment meted out in the hereafter is innate and essential, something that strikes at the very core of our being, there can be no defense against the ensuing grief, because all that lies ahead is an eternity of suffering and misery. You are only being repaid for what you used to do. In this world, we often see how a person's entire life can be completely transformed by one single mistake. Therefore, we can easily imagine what recompense awaits a person whose whole life is filled with wrongdoing and injustice. Surely, those who were mindful of God will be in gardens and in bliss. Those people who showed their strong willpower and self-control by keeping their anger, lust, greed, and desire in check will be surrounded by gardens and bliss in the hereafter. We cannot even imagine what the hereafter's gardens and blessings will be like or even conceive of the otherworldly enjoyments that await us. Everything mentioned in the Quran is merely a symbolic representation of a far more sublime reality, and every description mentioned therein is designed to help us understand this fact. Rejoicing in their Lord's gifts, and their Lord shall protect them from the torment of the hellfire. Being blessed and happy are not necessarily the same, for a person can be surrounded by all kind of blessings and still be unhappy. How many people live in a sort of paradise in this world and are still not content? The paradise of the hereafter is nothing like the paradise here, for no discontent can exist there, and thus its inhabitants are always filled to the brim with true joy. The verse indicates that God has protected them from being surrounded by punishment. 
This is a truly great blessing. For what could be greater than living in joyful surroundings without anything to cause unhappiness or sadness? They will be told, Eat and drink with true enjoyment because of what you used to do. Of course, the food and drink of paradise have nothing in common with their earthly counterparts. The Quran only uses this familiar imagery so that we might have a faint idea about these blessings. The idea here is to provide a reference point that will help people relate to the joys of paradise. They will be reclining on lined-up couches. We will pair them with beautiful-eyed maidens. Based on the apparent meaning of the verse, it might seem like this verse is speaking only to men and that the blessings of paradise are reserved for them alone. However, Hur is derived from the same etymological root as the Quranic term Hawariyun, the title applied to the pure-hearted and pure-souled disciples of Jesus. Clearly, this term has nothing to do with someone who possesses big and beautiful eyes, but shows that it means something far more sublime than what we tend to imagine. We will unite the believers with their offspring who followed them in faith. We do not deny them any of the rewards for their deeds. Each person is a pledge, as security, for that which he has earned. Many of us worry about the fate of our relatives and loved ones, parents, spouses, and children. Perhaps the first thing anyone wants is to be close to their nearest and dearest, and we want our loved ones to have a happy future. Nonetheless, everyone will receive the outcome that their deeds merit, for the quality of their actions is the foundation of their eternal happiness or perpetual misery. As our children and loved ones are responsible only for their own deeds, our supplications, vows, and devotions cannot save them if they disobey God. As the Quran states many times, the only path of redemption is sincere repentance and self-reform. We will provide them with any fruit or meat they desire. Once again, note how fruit and meat are indefinite, thereby illustrating that it may be literal or a kind of food that is unfamiliar to us. Such language stimulates our interest and excitement with whatever they desire or please. A 7th century Bedouin man believed that these would enable him to lead a happy life, and so he was promised a pretty wife, a pleasant garden, good food, and told he will enjoy these blessings with his wife and children. They pass around a cup that contains neither vanity or sin. This activity does not lead to vanity, vain talk, or sinfulness, 
which is exactly what drinking wine in this world leads to. Wine's only quality is its power to impair one's self-control. But in the cup of otherworldly wine, there is life, spirits, and purification of the soul. This verse's reference to wine is symbolic, and it is not accidental that Islam's mystical poetry speaks of wine, taverns, and intoxication that they found their inspiration for this imagery in the Quran itself. Going around them will be devoted male youths like hidden pearls waiting on them. This reality is depicted as a party that features servants constantly moving to and fro, catering to the guests' needs, for this is an image that we can understand. They are so handsome and well-dressed that they appear like pearls in oysters. From this point onward, the verses relate the conversations that the inhabitants of paradise are holding with one another. And some of them draw near to others, questioning. The people of paradise ask one another about their affairs, what they did in this world, what their occupation was, where they directed their efforts, and how they attained paradise. These questions and answers do not directly appear in the present chapter, but we can deduce such information from the following verse. And saying, Surely before, when we were with our families, we were ever anxious. They say they used to be worried and anxious about the fate of their family members, loved ones, and their own selves, but not in the sense of fear or dread. Imagine a mother whose child is playing in a park. Of course she worries that her son might fall from a slide, might trip and hurt himself, or that a hundred other unseen events might happen to him. The inhabitants of paradise also had this quality, not only for their children, but also for themselves, their spouses, and their nearest and dearest, in terms of what might happen in this world and in the hereafter. Therefore, one reason why people might go to paradise is compassion and empathy they show for others by sharing their pain and sadness worrying, and feeling apprehensive and anxious about them. We can extend this sympathy to all human beings. However, the bare minimum is that one should look after one's family. God has been gracious to us and saved us from the torment of intense heat. This chapter focuses on God's punishment in the hereafter, that affects one's innermost being and the core of one's existence. This punishment does not come from the outside. On the contrary, the punishment mentioned here is a kind of grief that seizes one's heart from within. In chapter 104, God describes it as a punishment that sets ablaze a person's very heart and mind.
Therefore, the greatest blessing that God has bestowed upon the inhabitants of paradise is his not allowing this internal blaze to afflict them. Surely, we used to supplicate to him. Truly, he is the all-benign, the all-merciful. Notice that they say, we used to supplicate to him, meaning that we were monotheists who only worshipped him, because only he is the all-benign, the all-merciful. All-benign, bar, means one who does good, as well as open land. The relationship between these two meanings is as follows. When you are on open land, nothing obstructs your vision, and so you can see all the way to the horizon. By the same token, we say that someone is bar because their goodness knows no bounds and goes on without end, just like the open land. Therefore, those who enter paradise worked to ensure that their own goodness reached other people, respected the rights of others and treated them well, and were charitable and kind because they were connected to the wellspring of God's special mercy. And so, it was only natural that their destiny would be paradise. We must seek shelter in God from the punishment engendered by our deeds and hope that He, among whose attributes are all benign and all merciful, inspire us to show compassion to all His creation. So, O Prophet, remind people, by the grace of your Lord, you are neither a sorcerer nor a madman. This verse addressed directly to the Prophet instructs him to admonish and direct our attention to something that we already know but have neglected or forgotten. The blessing and grace which Lord has bestowed upon the Prophet via the revelation is guidance. He is neither a sorcerer nor a madman. God informed the Meccans of this fact because they were accusing him of these very things, in addition to being a poet. Remember that these early verses revealed during the first year or two of his mission. However, one should also realize that his fellow Meccans had no concept of such things like revelation and would naturally find his claims outlandish. Or do they say, he is only a poet for whom we await an ill fate? Muhammad's contemporaries considered poetry an important occupation, and poets enjoyed considerable respect and high social status among the Arabs as a whole. Fellow Meccans regarded poetry as a versatile profession and treated its producers, who were usually very charismatic, accordingly. Say, wait if you wish. I too am waiting. You, the enemies of the Prophet, 
expect that his cause will soon wither and die. But you do not realize that he expects that your mistakes, sooner or later, will catch up, and you realize how wrong you were. And so, there is no disagreement between us, for all of us are waiting to see what the future brings. Do their minds command them to do this, or are they an outrageous people? Are these people's intellects really so weak that they would seriously believe such slanders? Or are they just a bunch of rebellious and outrageous people? They never seriously sought to determine whether Muhammad is actually a soothsayer, a madman, or a poet as opposed to being exactly what he claims to be, God's messenger and prophet. Do they say he has made it up himself? They certainly do not believe. They are not claiming that Muhammad is a fraud. They just simply do not want to believe that he is receiving revelation. When people stubbornly refuse to believe that something is true, no amount of evidence will convince them. The Quran calls attention to precisely this point. The problem is not a lack of evidence, but an obstinate refusal to accept that which is clearly true and real. Then let them produce a speech, hadith, like it if they are truthful. Here, as on many other occasions, the Quran refers to itself as hadith, a new and yet unheard speech. God challenges Muhammad's opponents to produce a hadith that is equal to it in terms of splendor, profundity, and depth if they can. God reminds them that the Quran is a new kind of speech that brings a fresh message and not something old or out of date. Were they created from nothing? Are they their own creators? These phrases constitute two separate arguments. Was humanity created from something or from nothing? And can any of you rejectors tell me where you came from? All of the constituents of sperms and eggs are derived from foods that are, in turn, derived from the soil. We are made of different elements, so how can anyone honestly say that we came from nothing and we just appeared out of the ether? If such is the case, then who combined all of these elements into the form of a human being? Can anybody claim that they made or created themselves? Did they create the heavens and earth too? No, indeed, they are sure of nothing. In addition to their self-creation, did human beings make earth, the heavens, and all the millions of galaxies in the cosmos? Do they really have the power to do so, or to make something from nothing. The real problem is not merely the lack of certainty, but rather 
their lack of desire to search in finding truth. Notice that the arguments here are neither philosophical nor theological in nature. On the contrary, they take people back to their innate nature and remind them to look at themselves and the surrounding world correctly and without prejudice. Do they possess or have control over your Lord's treasuries? This is yet another argument that God presents. What does treasuries mean here? Is this the sun's light and warmth, without which life on this planet would be impossible? What about the rain, and where does it come from? The minerals buried in the ground, the air we breathe, these and a thousand other things like them. Who placed them at your disposal? The original source of everything that exists lies with God. But from where did all of this energy and matter come? This third argument is based on the idea of ownership as opposed to creation. It proclaims that human beings did not create this world. They have no authority over any of it. And the world and all of its contents depend solely upon him for their existence. Notice how these arguments are laid out. Each aspect of making, owning, or governing the cosmos can be treated separately as three individual forces responsible for its existence in its present form. Do they have a ladder that they can climb in order to eavesdrop on heaven's secrets? Let their eavesdropper produce clear proof. If this is the case, then the listener must present clear proof of this fact. Is it not strange that God connects the act of listening to a ladder at a time when no one used a ladder for this particular purpose? But what about today? when some communication antenna and radio telescopes, which clearly resemble ladders in this regard, enable us to acquire data about the cosmos while sharing news from all over the world. In fact, such devices made it possible for scientists to discover the Big Bang. In any case, it is very interesting that God placed this expression in the Quran. So what is the meaning of this verse? The act of creation was invoked as the first argument, followed by ownership, governance, and this verse underlines that knowledge also comes from God. In one verse after another, the Quran proclaims that human beings did not create the world and therefore cannot maintain, govern, or have mastery over it. If they have any knowledge of their own, then let them ascend into the heavens to see what information they can find. These arguments are exceedingly clear and easily understood. Does God have daughters while you have sons? The Quran repeatedly proclaims that Meccans 
and other Arabs believed that angels were God's daughters. Surprisingly, these male idol worshippers who wanted only sons for themselves ascribed daughters to God. This verse exposes the men's hypocrisy, even by their own standards. The issue here is not whether boys or girls are better, but rather with criticizing their markedly low level of understanding. This anti-woman attitude has its roots in the history of tribal societies, as they were always fighting with other tribes, and so there was a legitimate need for men fighters. By the same token, the entire tribe felt humiliated if its womenfolk were captured and mistreated. For both of these reasons, many societies with tribal roots considered all of their womenfolk as burdens, and to expunge this shame, the father would bury his newborn daughter alive. Do you, prophet, demand a payment from them so they are overburdened with debt? The prophet asks nothing in return for the guidance he brings. These blessings are freely given gifts. Given that there is no cost to you for accepting these truths, why do you not want to hear them? Why is it so hard for you to accept this religion? Do they have access to the unseen? Could they write it down? Are these people able to access some information hidden in the unseen realm? Here, God is asking them, How can you be so utterly certain that what the prophet is saying is false, that the cosmos has no creator, and that the hereafter, the resurrection, and other such things have no basis in reality? Do they seek to ensnare you? It is the disbelievers who have been ensnared. Does their denial have some underlying agenda? As their denigrations cannot be considered reasonable or logical, are their other personal goal and interests driving them? What would happen to Meccan's leader if people continued to join the Prophet? a development that would threaten and perhaps deprive them of their wealth, power, and authority. The Quran states that those who distort the truth and pretend not to hear it will ultimately be harmed by their own plots and deceptions. In the system of divine governance reigning over the cosmos, evil schemes and malicious conspiracies always come back to harm those who originally devised them. Do they have a deity other than God? Exalted is God, far above the things they associate with Him. Their hearts are so cold and unresponsive to the Prophet's message that they must be dedicating their worship to that which is not God. As the Quran states in many verses, the entire cosmos depends upon Him. Notice that God does not say, There is no Lord besides me, 
but that he is completely free of the imaginings that these foolish people hold about him. Even if they saw a piece of heaven falling down upon them, they would say, just a heap of clouds. Even if these people see a cloud of punishment heading straight for them, they would just say it is nothing more than a rain cloud. From a distance, the plume of a volcanic eruption might resemble a giant black cloud. This verse alludes to the fact that these people, even if they saw a volcanic eruption as a form of divine punishment, with their own eyes, they would state that it is nothing more than a large rain cloud, because such clouds are usually dark. What is the significance of this analogy? In short, even when people are warned of an approaching danger, they still do not believe the warner. What are they waiting for? It seems that they do not want to be burdened by reason or logic, are unable to learn from experience or the fate of their predecessors, and could, spiritually, sleep right through. So what does it take to convince such people to believe? So leave them alone, O Muhammad, until they face the day when they will be thunderstruck. Divine punishment is like a thunderclap that takes a person unaware. This verse tells the Prophet to let them do as they please, for on that day they will see the consequences of their denial and rejection. On that day their scheming will be of no benefit to them, nor shall they be helped. And surely, for those who do wrong, there is a punishment besides that in the world, but most of them do not know. The punishment imposed in the hereafter is nothing other than the result of a person's own deeds. Not everyone has attained this level of knowledge to understand this fact. We do accept that our mistakes in this world have serious consequences. However, it seems that we do not accept when it comes to the spiritual realm. So wait patiently, O Muhammad, for your Lord's decree, for surely you are in our sight, and proclaim the praise of your Lord when you rise. The Quran continually reminds us that no pressure, compulsion, or force can ever be applied to persuade one to follow his religion. Instead, Muslims are to deal with rejection by remaining steadfast until their Lord gives his directive. God tells his messenger to bear his opponent's denials and accusations. This is how the divine system of prophethood functions. People sometimes forget that all of their actions are fully visible to Him. Although we abstain from doing so many things because we fear that maybe someone will see us. But when it comes to God, we do not seem to care or believe that nothing is hidden from Him. So, 
The first thing God tells the Prophet is to ignore those people and leave them to their own devices. The second is to show forbearance. And the third is to glorify and praise Him. Under the divine system of governance, many violations take place. God's laws are frequently broken and His ordinances disregarded by many whom never seem to be punished, as they continue to enjoy a pleasant and comfortable life. God is so generous that even the disbelievers and idolaters have the chance to repent and reform themselves before it is too late. He lets the consequences of their actions become clear to them, guides those who announce that they deny Him, and helps those who rebel against Him, just as He helps those who obey Him and seek the hereafter. According to the Quran, no one is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and generosity, whether they realize it or not. Glorify Him at night time, also, and at the setting of the stars. Some commentators have said that the first phrase refers to the time of night prayers, and that the second one alludes to the dawn prayer before the sunrise. However, I would argue that each of them have their own special significance and connection to the human soul and spirit. For example, fading stars remind people that their own star, their life, will one day fade from the world. This is just one aspect of the harmony between humanity and the natural order. When the stars begin to disappear, you will witness the breaking of the day and realize that the difference between truth and falsehood is as stark as the difference between night and day. The darkness of falsehood cannot last, because the dawn of truth is on its way to make the night fade away. So get up and glorify your Lord.